Good morning. Did you have a good Christmas? How many of you got a Christmas uh, a gift that you guys wanted? Oh, five people. <laughs> well, look at it this way. You have 363 days, and you got the uh, next Christmas. But next year is a leap year. <laughs> so 364 days for the next Christmas. Um, I spoke here uh, four months ago in August, uh, and my sermon title was No Suffering, No Glory. Does anyone remember? Yeah, five people. Good. <laughs> That's great. You uh, see, in my culture, when... Uh, when you see the same speaker, you know, guest speaker twice, usually it's one of the two. One, the person did a really, really good job. You want to invite him back and listen to him again. Or the second scenario. Oh, okay. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> and I did not pay her to do that, okay? Second scenario, the person did such a poor job. You want to invite him back and give him a second chance. Possibly the last chance for him to get redeemed. Um, even though uh, Travis is not here, I guess okay, he's not doing well. Uh, he's the one who invited me. So if this message is not good, uh, blame it on the, on the speaker. Not the speaker, but the person who has invited the speaker. Uh, and my last sermon uh, four months ago was uh, about 50 minutes long. And many people suffered. And it was very academic too. So I was debating between these two. Should I make this academic and boring or simple and boring? <laughs> you should thank the Lord. I chose the latter. <laughs> so you'll still be boring. I'm a man of a consistency. Uh, yeah, let's go to our text. Uh, we have a full uh, uh, text here. Uh, I have heard that in the Old Testament Bible, there are only three. Not three out of five, three out of seven, but three out of three. That we are commanded by God to love. In other words, only three in the Old Testament Bible that we are compelled to love. First, God. We are to love our Lord with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our strength. And it's the well-known Shema passage. It's like saying God first, not God second, not God third, but God first with an exclamation point. And it's the school model for Azusa Pacific University in Southern California. And uh, one of my spiritual fathers, uh, Oswald Sanders, mentions uh, this phrase, God first, in his uh, devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. If you are looking for a devotional book for 2016, I highly, highly recommend it. And God first, that's my personal life and ministry model as well. 
One definition of idol is anything or everything that stands between you and God. It's the thing or being or the person that stands between you and God that makes God second or third. Who is it or what is it in your life? Sooner or later, it has to be sacrificed. If not, God will sacrifice or destroy it on your behalf. Why? Because God loves you so much. He doesn't want all these secular things, waves, trends, and aspirations, even relationships that are not good and pleasing in His sight to make you go astray. He wants your heart. He wants your life. And He wants your future completely. In the summer of 2008, I got a call from the Billy Graham Center at uh, Wheaton College as one of the directors. So my family had to move. We lived in Washington State. Uh, and, and my family previously moved from Southern California to Washington State uh, in 2005. And uh, my uh, daughter took it really hard. And she did not want to, want to move again in 2009, you know, making new friends and leaving behind all those, you know, friends. And that's when and where it hit me, this, uh, this passage, Luke 14.26. Uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I mean, I knew that passage before. But for the first time, that really hit me. That, that in the course of my ministry, that I have learned to put my family second. Even my children cannot be the reason to veto what God requires of me. I have to follow what God desires. I have to sacrifice my children before the altar. You see, in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, there is no command that says you have to love yourself. And there is no way in the Bible does it say that you have to love your children. Think about it. Discipline, yes. Love, no. Then how about your parents? Yes, the Ten Commandments you know, says, honor your parents. Honor, not love. How about your pets? Okay, I know, I know. It's a very sensitive topic, right? You know, my family has a shichu named Melon. Like, you know, as in like watermelon. Um, ever since uh, she was puppy. So she's been with us for the past you know, 10 years. And we consider her 
a part of the family. But nevertheless, there is no mandate in the Bible that says, love your pets or animals. So you wonder, how come there is no command? Okay, I'm not saying that uh, loving your children, loving your parents, loving your pets is not bad. That's not what I'm saying, so do not, understand, do not misunderstand me here. What I'm saying is, according to the Bible, that there's no command from God that we love this. Ourselves, our children, our parents, and our pets. And I wonder why. I think it's because God does not have to require us, command us to love this because by nature, we love them already. We love ourselves. The thing is, we love ourselves too much. We love our children. And so on and so on without God telling us that we have to. Likewise, by nature, we don't love God. We don't love our neighbors and so on. First John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. To paraphrase it, do not love this world and what it offers. If anyone loves the things of this world, there is no love in his heart, in her heart, for the Heavenly Father. You know, for example, you cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. You cannot serve God and mammon, the God of money or love for money. You have to choose one over another. Either you love God or hate materialism. You cannot have both. Okay, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm gonna, I need to move on. Second, love your neighbors. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. So when someone asks Jesus, then, who is my neighbor? And instead of giving a definition for neighbor, Jesus gives this parable, right? The parable of what? The Good Samaritan. And Jesus' definition for a neighbor is, basically, is anyone and everyone that you come in contact with. So in today's context, your neighbors are not only people who reside next door in your neighborhood, but your co-workers at, uh, your co-workers at work, people you see in you know, public transportation systems, strangers you see on the streets, on your campuses, Everyday people you see in Joe Osco, Aldi, supermarkets, in Fox, Fox Valley Mall, and gas stations. And Jesus summarizes the Hebrew Bible this way. Love God and love your neighbors like yourselves. Matthew 
chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. I went to college in Boston, and I majored in religion and minor in philosophy. And my number one question that I wrestled with when I was young, in my 20s, was this question. What's the meaning of my life? What's the purpose of my existence? And I struggled with this question for about 10 years, you know, until God called me to ministry in my late 20s. And the answer was very simple. It was always there. I just did not realize it. And the answer to this question was, is, love God and love others. And you know what? That, loving God and loving others. I think that's a slogan for our church here too. That ought to be the purpose of your life. And that should be the calling of your life. And that should be our mission in life. That we love God and that we love others. We are not here on this planet to accumulate and enjoy so-called three Ps. Power, pleasures, and possessions. Or three S's. Status, sex, and salary. Those are the things that we cannot take with us when we die, when we enter into heaven. They do not carry eternal values. Number three, love the strangers and sojourners in your midst, for you were strangers and sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, 19. So here, God is commanding his people, the Jewish people, to love Not only to accept, to tolerate, to coexist with, but to actually embrace and love these foreigners, these foreign-born, non-Jewish populations who live among them. So in today's world, it would mean immigrants, refugees, international students on U.S. campuses like U of I, UIC, Aurora University, that's only, what, seven, eight you know, blocks from here? Migrant food workers in California's Central Valley. Undocumented people. You see, strangely, God commands us to love this Strangers and foreigners, sojourners, aliens, non-Jewish people. And they're missed. Why? Why does God carve out, single out, and cherry-pick these foreigners, aliens, and strangers from the masses? And I reflect on this one for actually a few months, last year. And this is my conclusion. God is intentionally putting an extra hedge of protection over this vulnerable 
powerless, voiceless people. Because by human nature, because of our sinful nature and our flawed systems, the dominant culture in any society tend to ignore, neglect, abuse, and oppress minority people groups in any society. And human history testifies to this reality. Of course, there are exceptions. And I know that it is very dangerous to make blanket statements like that. But I see that everywhere around the world. Not only here in the U.S., but in my homeland of South Korea, and in many nations, this anti-immigration sentiment, xenophobia, bigotry, especially toward Muslims nowadays, is so rampant. You see, no one is born bigot. People become bigots. Usually by bad influences from their parents and their friends. Allow me to uh, digress here a little bit. Okay? That's what Travis likes to say. And he digresses a lot. So bear with me. The great nation of ours has always been a country of immigrants and country for immigrants. Next year, 2016, is a presidential election, right? Election year. So let's look at some of the key players who are descendants of immigrants. Bernie Sanders, second-gen Jewish-American. His father left Poland after the Holocaust. The Republican Party, well, there are a lot of them. Uh, 13 now, just name a few. Let's start with the number one person in the polls, Donald Trump. His mother immigrated from Scotland. So from the mother's side, that will make him a second gen. From the father's side, paternal side, Germany, third generation. So that will make him 2.5 gen American. His first wife, first-gen immigrant from the Czech Republic, second wife, born in Slovenia in Eastern Europe, Jeb Bush's wife, born and grew up in Mexico, Ted Cruz, born in Canada, a second-gen Cuban-American, Marco Rubio, second-gen Cuban-American, The Fortune magazine is a highly respected magazine, predicted six weeks ago that Marco Rubio will be the Republican party's nominee, and he will pick Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina, to be the VP running mate. If that Fortune magazine prediction comes to be true, there will be two second-gen people running on the Republican ticket next year. Well, we'll find out. I'm mentioning all these names to make a point that all the U.S. presidents, without a single exception, have been descendants of immigrants, including President Obama. Along the same line, all the churches in our country on American soil have been originally, originally planted by either immigrants 
or by descendants of immigrants. There was not and is not and will not be a state church or national religion in the USA, unlike the state churches you see in Europe. So please remember, existentially speaking, all of us are immigrants. All of us are immigrants, whether we were born in the U.S., where we were born outside the U.S. As Christ followers, as pilgrims, as immigrants, as aliens and strangers here on the face of the planet Earth. This is not our home. We are here for a while, just passing through. As a first-gen immigrant, I can identify with it. Not only metaphorically, but realistically. So that's why when we talk, talk about death, we Christians call it home-going, right? It's a home with a capital H. All of us are in diaspora, in exile, on our way to the promised land, to the city of God. Just as the Apostle Paul said, I am longing to enter into heaven. This ain't my home. And all of us in that regard are immigrants. And as a matter of fact, our Lord Jesus Christ, he was an immigrant. He left his heavenly glories and he came to earth. He came down to the earth 2,000 years ago as a human baby, as an immigrant. And in that regard, all of us have been saved by an immigrant savior. And also, let us not forget that when Jesus was little, King Herod was killing babies left and right. So Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, they escaped to Egypt. So they were refugees in Egypt. Jesus himself was an immigrant and a refugee 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Speaking of an immigrant, I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about terminology now because words that we use to shape our perceptions, and our worldviews. The official name for the green card used to be Alien Registration Card. It's like a line from the movie Man in Black. Hey, you, let me check your alien registration card. Which planet are you from? I mean, the U.S. Immigration Service uh, changed the term, but uh, another misnomer that I hear is uh, a second-gen immigrants or third-gen immigrants. Um, 
Now, some people refer to children of immigrants as second-gen immigrants. And I like to point out that it's a misnomer. It's not an accurate description. So I was born in South Korea, so, and so that makes me a first-gen immigrant. And my wife here, and we have two kids, but they were born in Southern California. So they are not second-gen immigrants. They were U.S. citizens at birth. Just like the song by Bruce Springsteen, Born in the U.S. Well, that's an anti-government song. But, uh, so I want to play this song for you. This is Your Land by Uri Guthrie. Uh, so due to uh, time limitation, we'll just play for only 35 seconds, okay? Thank you. Okay, I know some of you who know a little bit about Uri Guthrie. You know, he was uh, accused of being a communist, so, but, you know, let's not get into that, okay? <clears throat> I've been to all 50 states in the last 35 years. It's a one beautiful country. My family immigrated to the U.S. 35 years ago. When I was a teenager, I became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1996. Ever since then, I've been carrying a U.S. passport. I am a first-generation immigrant, yes, but I am also first-generation American. This land is your land, but this land is also my land. This is your children's land. This is also my children's land. And if my children get married, and God willing, someday I become, you know, grandparent, this land will be my grandkids' land as well. I'm emphasizing this terminology issue because by the way we talk, it shapes our worldviews and it influences other people's perceptions on the first generation Americans as well. By continuing to call them, us, immigrants or refugees, the general public would continue to perceive them, us, as one of them, not one of us. Different people, peculiar people, foreign people, i.e., not familiar people. Instead of welcoming us as strangers, how about accepting us as new Americans? You call me new American, I call you old American. <laughs> According to a recent survey released by uh, LifeWay Research, this year, 9 out of 10, 9 out of 10 born-again evangelicals 
say that the Bible does not have any impact on their views on immigration reform. The survey also found that about 7 out of 10 Christians have never been encouraged by their church to reach out to immigrants. Of course, Village Bible is clearly an exception to that rule. The reality is that, unfortunately, American evangelicals are more influenced by the media than by the Bible. As Leif Anderson said, we need to turn off our TVs and open up our Bibles more. When it comes to controversial issues like gay marriage and abortion, we evangelicals always start with this question, what does the Bible say about this issue? However, when it comes to immigration and immigrants, some evangelicals still do not use the Bible card. What does the Bible say about this? But use different cards like, They are here illegally, the legality card. They use our services without paying taxes, the finance card. They take jobs away from us, us, the employment card. If you are truly Bible-believing, Bible-honoring evangelicals, that's the question we have to begin with. What does the Bible say about strangers, aliens, and all these undocumented people when you make your arguments for and against immigration and immigrants. By the way, immigration and immigrants are not one and the same. Immigration is a policy. Immigrants are people. Whether they are here legally or illegally, they carry the image of God. A friend of mine is president of the Navajo Nation. His name is Russell Begay. Is full-blooded Navajo. And many of these Native American reservations are sovereign nations. They have their own elections, they have their own presidents, and their own senators, and so on. Russell, the Navajo Nation president, told me once as a half-joke, okay? So bear with me. You know, it's not like all these white people from Europe you know, came to our lands with the proper documents. We never issued visas for their landings. None of them had passports, so we could not process and put, you know, a visa stamps on their passports upon their arrivals. They all came without our visa process and our approval, and all of them. Their kids and their grandkids, they stayed on instead of going back to their countries of origin. See, I told you my sermon is boring, okay? I'm just sharing a different perspective from the Native American paradigm. I want to share this interesting quote with you. The new immigrants are not de-Christianizing American society, but they are de-Europeanizing American Christianity. The new immigrants are not de-Christianizing American society, but they are de-Europeanizing American Christianity. 
there are about 4,500 Korean churches in the U.S., about 1,100 Korean, Korean-American churches in Southern California alone. We are not only people group to reach out to. We are kingdom partners. We are in it together. Next one. In the New Testament, Jesus adds this command. Of course, there are more uh, love passages in the New Testament. But uh, due to time uh, restraint, I'm just covering this one only today. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44 Who's your enemy? Or who are your enemies? Is it a group like ISIS? Or is it an individual? When you heard that phrase or command, love your enemies, which person or persons popped up in your head? Loving your enemies is extremely difficult, isn't it? Because it takes self-denial. It's about letting go. It's about swallowing your pride. It's about forgiveness. Those who have done you wrong, those who betrayed you, abused you, abandoned you, backstabbed you, stole your money and valuables. But look at what Jesus did on the cross. As he was bleeding, dying on the cross, instead of condemning those who are crucifying him, who are making fun of him, Jesus makes this request to the Father. Father, please forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. If you have an enemy, in your heart, and if you need to ask someone for forgiveness, First, pray for them, pray for yourself, and then make a contact. Send an email, and what's better, pick up the phone and call. Set up a time to meet face-to-face, have a coffee or a meal, and have a heart-to-heart conversation. Make amends. Six days ago, a remarkable thing happened in Kenya. When uh, militant Muslims tried to kill all these Christians on the bus, Muslim women gave their hijabs to Christians, and they refused to leave the bus. 
And these Muslim women said, You let all of us go? If not, if you are going to kill, kill us all. And the terrorist left the bus in disbelief. It's that kind of radical love that we need to demonstrate to the whole world. We have to convert their hearts with our sacrificial, selfless love. Okay, I need to move on. Finally, some practical ways to reach out. Village Bible and has wonderful programs, you know, friendship festivals. You have a you know, community garden back there for immigrants and refugees. Actually, that's what hooked me, what attracted me to come and set down roots here. Because you guys are, you know, handing out uh, free raised beds for immigrants. I, I qualified. Um, it was great. I loved it. And one question that I hear a lot is this. I just don't know where to begin. I just don't know how to reach out to this, you know, ethnic immigrant, you know, diaspora people, people of different faith, people of no faith. Well, let me ask you uh, with this question. Some of you are wondering why I have uh, my tie here. I was supposed to wear this during my uh, message about being an American and all that, but I guess I, I forgot, so... I wear it now. And uh, my question to you is, how do you begin a relationship? I mean, any relationship. It starts with what? Hi, right? It does not start with where are you from. Um, And then uh, you state your name. You know, my name is Jackie Chan, you know. What's yours? I once met a guy named Bruce Lee, Anglo guy, no kidding. His family name, uh, L-E-E, Lee, and his father loved Bruce Lee movies. So, and the guy you know, named Bruce Lee, he really loves his name. Such a cool name, I get a kick out of it, you know. A lot of ladies recognize my name and always remember me. But anyway... Uh, you see it was a bad idea right (laughs) you know invite them and their kids into your house get to know them as individuals spend time together and develop a meaningful meaningful relationship Sorry for, the, sorry for the static. You know, invite them to your Thanksgiving dinner. You know, these are international students. Um, they never forget having Thanksgiving meal inside, you know, inside an American family's home. And go beyond you know, your comfort zones, like, you know, go beyond the Chinese takeouts, okay? So try, you know, different things, different ethnic restaurants, because 
Food is an essential component of understanding and appreciating someone's culture. I love your church's mantra. Awkward is what? Awesome, right? Let me ask you this question. This year, in 2016, 15, how many of you have invited a person of different race who is not a member of this church into your home this year? Five people? Good. (laughs) But we, all of us, As God's covenant children are on the same journey as called pilgrims to the city of God. Regardless of our ethnic background, skin color, cultural differences, David said, you know, some idiosyncrasies, we are all in it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you belong to Jesus, All those who belong to Jesus are also part of you. Think about that. If you belong to Jesus, all those who belong to Jesus are brothers and sisters in Christ. That way, we know that when one body part suffers, all the body parts suffer together. When one body rejoices, all the body parts rejoice together. Because All of us belong to the same body. And we have a one Holy Spirit. We have a one same destination that we are going. Yes, we still need to send out Christian workers to the ends of the earth and serve them with our prayers and our finances. But let's not forget that our God has also sent Millions of these people who used to live at the ends of the earth to our cities and communities. Why not, while not losing the passion for the global mission, let's not forget that the global mission starts with our Jerusalem, where we are today, where we live, where we work And our missionary God is compelling us to go and serve these people. And our immigrant Savior is compelling us to go and embrace all these people. The broken, the suffering, the marginalized, the ignored, the neglected, the abused, the powerless, the voiceless, i.e., the most vulnerable in our midst. People such as widows, orphans, prison inmates, the shut-ins, the disabled, international students who are spending their Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons in dorm rooms, eating ramen and bread. All these people in the shadows occupy special places in God's heart. When we stand before God one day in heaven, our lives 
will be evaluated and assessed not by what we accumulated and what we enjoyed here on this earth, but by whom we loved, how many we loved, how much we loved, how long we loved, how sacrificially we loved, and how deeply we loved. We have so much to give to this world. The message, hope, and love of Jesus Christ. We have so much to offer. We have so much to share in this broken and sin-infested world. You and I live only, live only once here on this earth. And you and I have only one life to give for the sake of God's church, for the sake of people everywhere. So, let us make it a worthwhile journey together in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. For the people of God everywhere, especially for the least and the lost. I'll close it with a prayer and benediction. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth from heaven 2,000 years ago as an immigrant savior. We are here because of your birth, your sacrifice, your faith, and your love for us. Help us to live a life of incarnation, identifying with the sufferings of the people, locally, nationally, and globally. And may your name be lifted high among the nations in our cities and communities. May our Father shine his face upon you. May he give you strength, hope, and shalom. May he be your guiding light in times of darkness. May he grace his presence upon your life's journey from here to eternity. Amen.